Well, good morning again, Christ Chapel, and happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Would everyone take a copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Let me tell you how to find that. If you have a Bible, just go right to the middle of the Bible. Just go to the middle, open it up, and then just go a little bit to the left, and you'll be Psalm 127. And uh, by the way, blessings to everyone who's participating in our worship experience this morning. South Campus, we love you, you guys down there in Burleson area. Converge, we love you. Of course, all our streamers, I want to say good morning to, um, to sweet Nikki Lam in Hong Kong. We pray for Hong Kong. We know, Nikki, you're watching this, this morning. Also to our dearest friends, the Bolts in Nanjing, to Rod and Angelina, we love you guys. And also to all the West Campus, can't overlook the West Campus, and not my favorite of all, but new brothers and sisters in Christ, the Hive Traditional. Did you know we have started the very first traditional worship experience in Parker County, I think in 20 years. We have an orchestra, uh, uh, 29-piece orchestra, and I think a 22 or 23-voice choir out there, and in the West Campus, and so we're off and running at about 200 people worshiping. So bless you guys this morning. I love you. Uh, just love everything you're all about, all the volunteers and so forth. Now, everyone needs a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible in those venues, if you'll raise your hand, like out at the Hive Traditional, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you a Bible, and we're page 518. Page 518, Psalm 127, 127. Read along with me, at least listen along as you follow in the Scriptures. This is a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Or a better translation of that is he gives to his beloved even in there sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And may God richly bless the public reading of his word. You know, I, I want to kind of complain with you this morning. I've done quite a few dumb things in my life. I really have, and uh, years ago when I used to office at the other end of the building, my office was upstairs above Converge, and I was constantly locking my keys in my office. I'd come back from lunch or from some meeting, some counseling meeting or whatever, and I'd be locked out of my office. So finally I got the bright idea after doing that at least 50 times to ask operations for another key. So I I got just a single key, and I thought, okay, I'm going to hide this key somewhere, so I uh, took a paper clip, and I put a paper clip on this big old steel key, and I, and I bent it over so it hangs somewhere, and then I started looking for some place to hang the key, and I couldn't find anything upstairs or anywhere close to my office, so I went down the stair, and in a little narrow hallway back behind Converge back there, there was this big gray panel. It was a, I knew it was an electrical panel. I'm not totally dumb. I thought, that's a big electric panel right there. It's all bolted down, but you know what I noticed? There was a little black slit right there, opening right there. Kitchens, you finally found it. Slide that key in the hole, and every time you lock yourself out of your office, just come back, and there's the paper clip hanging over. Pull the key out, unlock it. Bingo, you're back in business. I didn't know that there were 
400 billion volts of electricity coming in right to there. I slid the key into the slot, and then my ears began to ring because fire belched out of that hole. The key was melted in half, literally. I'd stuck it right between two terminals where all the power to all the building came together right there. I've been bald ever since. <laughs> it was just a it was just really dumb move. I, I, I should have known. There's all kinds of electricity. Half of Fort Worth was powered right there in that box. And, and there's the key. Pretty dumb, don't you think? You've done some things similar, haven't you? When my son was in high school many years ago, he had a buddy in high school, and the teacher in their Latin class would let them bring candy to class. So one faithless morning, his buddy had a Tootsie Roll Pop. You know Tootsie Roll Pops. They got that long white stick on them. It's a big, round, sweet candy. He had a Tootsie Roll Pop in his mouth. The teacher stopped the class and said, okay, it's okay to have candy, but not a, it's distracting to have that big, white stick coming out of your mouth. So he did something really dumb. He didn't remove the Tootsie Roll Pop. He didn't remove, the, he took a pair of scissors, and with the stick still in his mouth, he snipped off the end of his nose <laughs> with a pair of scissors. Snipped off the end of his nose. <laughs> now, what was really bad and embarrassing and dumb about it was I, from that day on, have called him Pinocchio because his nose did grow back out. He's fine. He didn't mar him. It just got the very end of it. But that's just a dumb thing. We all, we all do dumb things, don't we? Really, really dumb things. Things that are sometimes have serious consequences. And actually, that's what this psalm is about. It's, it's to Christians about intentionally understanding that often we step into some really dumb things. I have four questions for this text, just four. The first question is, what is a psalm of ascent? You probably asked that yourself. Well, there are only 14 psalms of ascent Remember, ascent means going up. Of the 150 psalms in the Old Testament, there are 14. David is responsible for four, as I recall, but Solomon only wrote one, and that's this. This is a Solomonic psalm. And it's about uh, when the people of God ascended up to Jerusalem to worship in the spring, summer, or the fall, those different festivals and feasts. We also know that historically the priests would quote our or read this musical line. It's a style of poetry, if you will, as the choir master would go up with the priest to worship in the temple. It was used by God's people throughout history, maybe even today, some Orthodox Jews use this. So that's what it is. It's a psalm of ascent. It's what God's people used, the Jews used, as they went up to worship God or went up from their villages up to the great city of Jerusalem, ascended up. Second question, who's the author? Well, I've already told you that. Solomon. He wrote it in 932 B.C. Remember, Solomon is considered to be the wisest man who ever walked the earth except Jesus. The third question is, does this psalm have any structure? Did you notice as I read through it, we start off with, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it build it in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city. So it goes from house to city walls, and it goes to work unless you Trust God with your work. Uh, you have anxious toil. Even when you sleep, God seems to be involved in it. He's talking about work and sleep. And then he, at the very end there in verse 3 and through 5, he talks about children. So is there really any unity to it? See, historically, some theologians believe there's no real unity to this 
to this psalm. In other words, it doesn't have a flow to it, but actually quite the opposite is true. It does have unity. He starts with the foundational elements of humanity. First, home. Second, a city in which to have a safe home. Third, a place to earn income so that you can care for the needs of that home. And then what do we normally consider, especially the Jewish people, to be the most abundant thing we can have from God? Children to fill up that home. It's exactly what's happening here. There's great unity, tremendous flow. It's, a, it's really a tight outline. Preachers like myself love outlines like this. We can unpack it pretty easily because it's quite obvious there. The fourth question is why this title? Would you notice the title? Hey, that's really dumb. Well, that's not my title. That's the wisest man who ever lives title, Solomon's title. You know, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, he says 33 times, it is vain for you to do this. It's vanity to do that. He mentions 33 times vanity. In the first two verses here, you'll notice he says, unless the Lord builds a house, if you build it, you labor in vanity, in vain. And then he talks about your, your, your city is in vain if, it, if you don't have God as your overseer and etc. He uses three times, and by the way, he puts the word vain in the Hebrew text, and remember Hebrew reads from the right to the left rather than as we read from the left to the right. The first word in these verses is vain. Vain does not mean in Solomon's vernacular just useless, empty, pointless, ineffective. Those things are of course true, Vain to Solomon means something worse than that. It means stupid. You're just stupid. It's dumb. It's dumb. And by the way, Solomon did some pretty dumb things in his own life as well. He sure did. Now, you have your sermon notes. Everyone have their sermon notes. Look at them with me, please. The person who tries to live their life without God's blessing, which is Solomon's point here, is dumb. You can understand an atheist doing that, living without God's blessing, not even believing there is a God, but not a Christian, not a Christian. He's saying here that without God's critical involvement, no house, no city, no family will prosper or survive long-term without him. So there are five little insights he gives us I think uh, I apply to my life regularly. And so let me unpack those for you. You have those in your notes there. Let's just look at this. For the godly, it's really vain. It's stupid. It's dumb. To endeavor to build a house for a marriage and a family without first consulting the divine architect. That's what he says in 1A. Look at it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, those who build it, build it in vain. It's not wise, it's foolish to build your house without God's involvement. Now, uh, when he says house here, uh, he means literally a house, like bricks and mortar, stone and wood in those days. He's talking about a house. The language of, it's a building, a literal structure, if you will. In fact, we think that Solomon had just finished the great temple there in Jerusalem, so he understood what it's like to have an architect. God was his architect for the great temple. In fact, in uh, 1 Kings 9, 3, there's a neat verse. God says to him, my heart will always be there with my people in the great city 
in the great temple in Jerusalem. In fact, historically, uh, when he finished the temple and dedicated it, the Shekinah glory came down from heaven. A massive light came from heaven. The same light that led the children of Israel across the desert for 40 years came down and descended and dwelt inside that temple. Would that not have been a spectacular moment? There'd be no Super Bowl halftime be quite as good as that. He built this house for God. This involves where and how we invest. If you want to make this practical for you and me Monday morning, uh, when was the last time you bought a house, built a house, rented an apartment? Uh, did you seek God at all in that endeavor? And you'd be saying to me, well, you mean like the colors of the carpet and the color of the wall or the furniture? No, I think God's blessed you enough with those gifts to do that. But did you seek him about where it's going to be located? Did you seek him about can you really afford it? Did you ask the great architect his insight and direction and blessing on that house? Over the years, I've had people come to me and say, you know, we're building a, a, a lake house or in Oklahoma. I said, well, that's maybe a wonderful thing. And I, I think lake houses are marvelous and homes in other states are fantastic. And this is not a comment against that at all. I'm sometimes jealous of that, of course. But um, have you ever taken into account that it might mean you're not attending the local body of Christ most of the time because you've got this massive investment and, and you want to be there to maximize it. I mean, it just makes sense as humans, right? Have you, have you, did you seek God in that at all? The location? Did you build your house so that it has a large place in the middle so you could actually accommodate a home group or individuals to come over and use it as a kingdom center for God's work? That's what he means. For kingdom purposes. But also this language is interesting. It also it could be understood as a foundation of a, of a marriage or household. Do you build your house you know, apart from God? Um, what goes on in a house should, should demand that we seek divine approval. God has an architect for households, for marriage. He has a, a clear design, one man, one woman for life, very clear in the Old and the New Testament. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. You break contracts. You don't break covenants. And I was really shocked the other day to read something. Uh, actually, it was last week. The new Pew report just came out. And by the way, the Pew reports are not conservative Christian. They're conservative, objective, I should say, but they're not Christian at all. It's amazing. Last year, for the first time in the history of our country, people who cohabit, couples, men and women, cohabit, are higher now than men and women who actually officially marry. That's interesting. More couples have been living in romantic partnership than are marrying. Numbers getting married have dropped. Numbers cohabiting are going up. 69% of Americans say it's okay to cohabit, to test the car out before you buy it, if you will even if they're not ultimately going to get married. Only 14% of the country says it's not appropriate to go have it. You know what I mean by that? Romantic partnerships in a home, in an apartment, whatever. Not married, but living as one. And of that 14%, I'm one who says that's not a good thing. Let me finish this report because it's pretty astounding. The irony is that more Americans today are, are growing in their acceptance of cohabiting, uh, but... 
it's detrimental to their lifestyles. The Institute of Family Studies says couples who are testing their relationship experience higher levels of depressive symptoms, abandonment, anxiety, and negative interactions. In fact, the IFS, this uh, Institute of Family Studies says, if you're considering testing your relationship, this is a quote, it is likely not the wisest thing to do. It's not wise. And I know it makes sense in our society. It makes sense maybe to some of us in the room, some of us watching. You know, it, we, you know, we want to combine our money. We're not totally sure if God's in this or we're going to get married someday. All that's good. And I, I, I not want to be hypercritical. I'm just asking the question, if you're going to build your house without God's architectural design divinely, it's dumb. Our offices are always full of counselees. Why? Because relationships that shouldn't be or that weren't handled correctly are coming unraveled. And the higher rate of divorce, much higher rate of divorce within cohabiting couples, if they marry, than there is in the normal population of married people. There is no single subject, it writes, that on which marriage, married adults do not have higher satisfaction than those people who cohabit. Now, I'm not picking on cohabiting. I'm picking on the idea that do we really seek God's direction with our marriages? Look what he says. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless we do it God's way, you do it in vain. It's, it's dumb. It's going to hurt you ultimately. Would you imagine a world with me right now where, where all our marriages were healthy? You know what we wouldn't have? Pornography, prostitution. We wouldn't have sex trafficking. We wouldn't have adultery. What a world we would live in if we just do it God's way. We're dumb. That's what he's saying. This is Solomon saying this. His divine design for the house is better. Do it God's way and you will be blessed. Look at the second one, verse 1b. For God's people, it's kind of stupid to think that your community or city are safe from enemies and evil without divine watch care. That's what he's saying. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You can see the watchman up on the, up on the top, up on the uh, crest of the wall, say, protecting the city. He stays awake in vain. A nation cannot exist entirely on human integrity and effort, uh, ingenuity rather, and effort. It must at some point have God's blessing on it. Imagine the Great Wall of China. Many of you have been to the Great Wall of China. I've been there. Mongols got through all over. They built this wall. It's thousands of miles, and it's so wide you could drive a, eight horses on a chariot. Oh, to protect what? It didn't work. You know, my favorite verse, probably in all the Old Testament, at least top two or three, is Psalm 20, verse 7. If you get a correspondence from me, it'll probably be at the bottom of that correspondence. And here it is. This is Psalm 20, verse 7. It says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, which means our armies and our government, but we trust in what? The name of the Lord. Yeah, that's what he's saying here. The nation's future depends on our prayers and and God's favor, in my opinion, is our city does. You know, Fort Worth is a fantastic place to live. Folks out in Parker County, 
Willow Park, Alito, Hudson Oaks, those are fantastic places to live. But in Fort Worth, did you know, there's a massive underbelly of Fort Worth. I tell people, come here. This is a wonderful place to live. But you know what we need to be doing? Rather than adding two or 300 more police officers, we need to be praying for the city of Fort Worth because there's a darkness under our city that most of us don't experience. And we build it and we add to it and we put a buffer around it. And yet, that evil still comes in. Difficult things still happen. You say, why? Because the Lord's not blessing those areas. Second Chronicles 20, verse 15 this is God speaking to Jehoshaphat. He says this, the battle is not yours, but it's God's, it's mine. So when you think about your community, you think about your city, wherever you live, Burleson, Hong Kong, Nanjing, China, wherever you live, it's the Lord's blessing on us. And I'm asked this every week, so let me just get this out there. Will America survive? By the way, are you aware of the fact that politics since the beginning, Jefferson hated Adams. Adams hated Jefferson. If there had been social media, there's no telling what we'd had back in those days. It'd been horrible. In some ways, it's a good thing that we have all that conflict. But I, because of it today, we, we feel like that you know, things are coming unraveled and the whole world's coming apart. And let me remind you that Tiberius oversaw Rome for 35 years, Caligula is one of the worst emperors ever. Nero was horrible. In the middle of all that, there's great Christian persecution and divisiveness and all that. Uh, and yet, Rome still survived for hundreds of more years. But here's my answer to the question. If God wants it to, if he doesn't, it just won't. End of comment. Notice what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 to the philosophers in Athens on Mars Hill. Look at this carefully. The God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. You know what he's saying? Every country, every war is ultimately determined by God's sovereign direction. And we will exist as a free country loving Jesus because a good part of us still loved Christ for as long as he wants us to because he set the boundaries. He sets the time for this experiment to continue to be successful or not. By the way, it's unwise to not, for you not to be involved in politics. It's unwise. Christian, you should be involved in politics, but you should not trust that that's going to solve anything. God bless our town, our state, and our nation. Amen? Hey, look at number three, verse 2a. He says this. It's kind of stupid to see your work and career as your own endeavor. It's all about you. Aren't you, aren't you smart? Independent of God's calling and direction. I, I love this passage. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And circle anxious toil. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? You know, anxious toil? In the ancient days, just eating was a big deal. Just having enough food for your family was a big deal. It's not so much for us. In fact, Jesus addresses it in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, why are you anxious about this? God's going to take care of you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, wear, drink. 
He takes care of the birds of the field and the flowers, right? That, he was speaking to this idea of anxious toil. I'm totally convinced the reason we've had all these college scandals over the last many months is because parents outside of Christ, most likely, most likely, I don't know them personally, they've got anxious toil on their minds. And they want their children to always have one, one better notch up the ladder so their lives will be just a little bit easier. And yet, in their decision-making they foolishly turned their children's lives into hell. It's about anxious toil. Let me talk about this. My average work week before I changed my role uh, with you as a wonderful was 70 hours a week. That's not right. It's not right, really. I'm careful now with the leadership of our church not to let those men and women work that long. It's anxious toil, concerned about the future, concerned about taking care of everything. God is, God is our best work agent. And when we don't trust him, you know what we end up doing? We end up violating the fourth commandment. I read just the other day that most Americans don't even know the Ten Commandments. What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now the point for that, for those Old Testament believers, Old Testament Jewish follow, God followers, Yahweh's followers, was that you work six days, and then on the seventh day, let God work for you. He'll take care of your needs. There was a principle he was teaching his people there. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And by the way, this was not a suggestion. This was a commandment. Does it carry over to our lives? In a sense, the principle definitely does. We work, and we work, and we work, and we work. And for what? I I love to talk to real estate brokers because it's interesting in many industries, especially that one, some of my dear friends and some of you are in that industry. Sometimes you'll work on a deal and work hard for months and months and it just fall through. Last minute. Other times you wake up on Monday, you get a phone call and by Tuesday night you've sold the deal and made your profit. What's up with that? You tell me. We often say so busy we don't have time for the things that matter most to God, which would be him, our faith, and our family. We don't. By the way, we've never in history had more time efficiency mechanisms and tools than we do today. And yet, and yet, the work thing is still a problem, isn't it? Some of us, by the way, are retired, and you know what? You're still too busy. It's just in our blood because we're Americans, and I think it's okay to work hard, and I'm a major league capitalist. Jesus was a capitalist, but sometimes we need balance, and I think that's what he's saying. Ask God. It's, it's in vain to get up early, stay out late, eat the bread of anxious toil, and then God gives it to somebody else. By the way, I do think one of the most interesting verses is the next part of chapter of verse 2b. Look at it. It's the fourth point. You're foolish to miss the truth that God can bless you even in the most unlikely times. Even in the most unlikely times. For he gives to his beloved, and the best translation in my opinion is even in his or her sleep. What's the most unlikely time in your life to be productive? You say, well, early in the morning because I am not a morning person. Until I had my 17th cup of coffee, I'm worthless, right? Some of you, are your, I asked somebody this morning, what, are you an early morning person? Oh, yes, I am. But I'm not an evening person. I mean, I'm gone at 9 o'clock. I'm out. 
When, when are we the least productive? When you're asleep. <laughs> and that's his point. When you're asleep. He gives to his beloved even in the sleep. And I'm not talking about Santa Claus here. And you go to sleep, you wake up under the tree. Whoa, look at those packages. No. You work. And then you go to sleep. Uh, notice Matthew chapter 4. Jesus addresses this himself in this parable of the seed and the farmer. He, he addresses this idea of workaholism. Notice this. And then he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. This is the farmer. So he works his routine. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. And he doesn't know how. Well, God said, I, will, I can bless you even when you're asleep. Have you ever thought about that? In fact, I pray this regularly. God bless me. Bless your people to Christ Chapel even while they're asleep. That's the best blessing. Is that what you think? It's really good. By the way, workaholism is um, something that I believe Solomon's speaking here in this Solomonic Psalm. You know how you, you know you're a workaholic? This is not a joke. When you get more Christmas cards from business friends and associates than from your own family or friends. You know you're a workaholic when you uh, wear your cell phone to church. And, you know, you could forget to turn it off. I've done that before. Some of you probably have your cell phone right now in your purse or in your pocket, and it's okay. You should have it with you. Uh, and you may have forgotten to turn it off. That's perfectly okay. Honestly, it is. What's not really okay is if you answer it, if it rings. I've actually had that happen twice. Once over here in this section, right over here. <laughs> and once up there in that section way up there. So if your phone rings during this worship experience, it better be God. I'm only kidding. We do make those mistakes. I've done it before. It's okay. But the point is, why would you answer it here unless you had some emergency and you shouldn't be here if you did? You're a workaholic when you, you, you go to your kids back to school night and you've forgotten what school they really attend. I've actually seen people do that before. And then our, your family refers to you as occupant. The fifth and last one in verses three through five. You're dumb if you fail to understand that children are a gift from God designed to fill a purpose and bring joy to your life. And folks, I believe we know this quite well. We love children. There are so many families in our church, young couples who are desiring children. And we pray for you and asking God to bless you. It's a, it's a blessing. It, we all know it. Grandparents, you know it. Wow, is it ever a blessing. But some peoples around the world don't believe that. Too many children or too many mouths to feed. The Chinese folks up until three years ago actually had the one child law. And you can imagine how many children aren't walking the earth today because of that. Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Blesses is the man who fills his quiver with them. They're a precious gift. You know how we know they're a precious gift? Listen to what the scripture says. Jesus himself says this. Each child has a guardian angel. Matthew 18, 10. God promises wrath on those who cause any child to stumble or hurts them spiritually or physically. 
Jesus loves and shows interest to the children. Matthew 19, 14, he said to the disciples, do not hinder these children from coming to me. And here, of course, Psalm 127, children are a blessing. They're a blessing. So I want to be very sensitive to those who desire children in our church. because We know they're a blessing. Some people don't know that. But you know what's more importantly? He says in this text, the last part of verse 5, that blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies at the gate. The point here is the gate was the central place for economic well-being and for government in a city. And if a man stood at the gate or was an elder at the gate and he had a large number of sons behind him or daughters, there was protection there. There was support there. My grandfather, my father being one, had seven children, or was it eight? One uncle or aunt I'm missing, to run the farm, to keep the farm going. Some of you know exactly what I mean. But what's implied in this text is that the children need to have you collaborate with them on their spiritual well-being and their future. Raise a child up in the way it shall go, and it shall not depart from, from that way. Proverbs 22.6 says that. So take them to church. Teach them how to have a daily devotional, your children. Encourage them to read the Bible, pray with them, etc. Do that. Pray for their salvation above everything else. And by the way, uh, we are firmly, firmly as a church, pro-life. And you all know that. Praise God for that. Um, this is not mere sentimentality. We are accountable to God for how we influence our our children, and everything about them. I love what Mother Teresa said. She said, children are like flowers. You can never have too many of them. And I think that's right. By the way, grandparents, I got a good joke for you, for, for your grandchildren. What did the zebra say to the piano? Dad. Uh, you, you know, when I told that to my grandkids last night, uh, I had the same response. Uh, so I think I won't be telling this the next hour. Well, beloved, this is really not about us. This psalm is not about us. It's about our God, our great, gracious, powerful God. He is worthy. Our God, that, that's what this is about. So it's also about intentionality. So let me take it and put it in a Monday morning application format. Look at your notes, and, and then I'll, I want us to spend just a moment in prayer Here's how you would invoke God's blessing. How would you get God's blessing in these areas of your life? How would you be smart and wise rather than foolish, dumb, or even harshly stupid? First, repent of the spirit of independence in your life. We all have this spirit of independence. We're trained that way. It's what school teaches us. It's what the, the society teaches us. But we are God's, we belong to Jesus. We're his. For whatever he wants to do with us, we're his. So first, ask him to formally bless your home and make it a kingdom center. Formally bless your home. Have you ever done that? You say, well, I've been in this home 40 years, Pastor. We've remodeled it four times. Have you ever formally blessed the home? Head of household? Part, apartment? Dorm room? Have you ever formally blessed it? I actually do a formal house blessing. Biblical house blessing. It's a neat, wonderful evening. And I know that I, if you would wanted to have your home blessed, you'd say, well, I'm going to call Pastor Ted. Don't call me. <laughs> Don't call me. 
I put that whole thing, and it's a secret. You can't share it with anyone else, but it's on the back of your sermon notes. Exactly how to have a home blessing. You see it in the box there? Step one, step two, step three. Head of household. Dad's mom's, whoever's the head of the household. Have a house blessing ceremony. What a great thing to do to say, God, this place is yours. Bless it, please. You're the divine architect. Bless it. Two, pray consistently for your community and your country. How would you do that? Well, pray for a politician you agree with, and then why don't you choose one you don't agree with and pray for them as well. You know, we only get to vote once every cycle, election cycle, but you can pray every day. Every day. That's the way you do it. Lord, bless this city. It has a, as every city, it has a difficult underbelly. There's tons of sex trafficking in the city of Fort Worth, and actually every city in the state of Texas, big city. Pray for the city, pray for politicians, and pray for the ones you don't even like. Request three spiritual blessings on your career and your, stu- and your studies if you're uh, in, in the academic world. Find a prayer partner in your workplace. You know, we started a faith and work initiative back in January, and it's just going phenomenally well. I look forward to telling you about it. We got businesses all across the city who are having monthly biblical studies or studies in their office place. Four, commit to bless your children and your grandchildren. This Thanksgiving, four days away, tell your children your faith story. Solomon is saying very simply, it is vain for you to build a home. It is vain for you to go to work without his blessing. It's vain for you to build a city wall in the city without his blessing and to fill all of this with wonderful, wonderful, robust fruit of children. It's vain for you to do this. Be intentional. Ask God to bless each of these areas. And so I want to do that in closing. Would you bow with me? I want us to pray for these areas very briefly. And you can take it from here. Would you imagine your home or your apartment, your abode right now? Imagine it, just visualize it if you will. It's okay to visualize some things and visualize that. Now, say, Lord God, bless it. Put an angel at the front door and the back door so nothing but good comes in this place. Bless it. Would you pray for your community, wherever you are? Burleson, Willow Park, Fort Worth. Ask God, Lord, bless it. Bless the things we can't see. Put your favor on it. Now, Now, bless your workplace. If you're a homemaker, bless that responsibility you have, how much work that is, we all know it's so much work. If you're out there in the marketplace, just visualize your work area and ask God to bless it. Now, some of us have so many children and grandchildren, might not be able to mention them all by name, but just ask God, Bless my children, Lord God, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. Put your watch care over them and my grandchildren.
and everyone listen to my voice, let me make you an offer this morning. The God who created you, who came to this old earth and died for your sins and my sins, he's asked you to let him bless your life. And that all begins by a relationship with him, by admitting who you are, lost in your sins, believing he came and died for you, and confessing your need. You know, we can do a whole lot of dumb things, but the dumber thing, if you will, is to walk away from Jesus. Lord God, thank you for blessing us in Christ. I pray that you'd put your good favor on everyone in this room and listening to my voice. May all these foundational areas of our life have your good favor, not because we deserve it, but because you tell us to ask, because you want to give good blessings to your children. We do this in Christ's name. Amen.